Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Like every agency, Customs and Border Protection relies on its acquisition workforce to keep it supplied. In the ongoing crisis at the U.S. southern border, CBP appears to have a secret weapon in the person of its assistant commissioner for the Office of Acquisition. This long-serving official has also received a presidential rank award. Diane Sahakian joins me now. Ms. Sahakian, good to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. You're excited about procurement and acquisition. Tell us more about uh, what you actually do there and uh, how you okay. support the mission. Well, first of all, I'm dual-hatted. I'm also the head of the contracting activity. It was attached to the job that I had recently been promoted from, and pretty soon I will that will go to somebody else. But pretty much for the last, I don't know, eight years or so, I have been the head of contracting activity for CBP. And if anybody follows the news... There's a lot of action at CBP, and I've always said I think we're the probably the most, one of the most, uh, I'll say, responsive and hard-charging procurement shops in government just to keep up everything that we know that is going on. It seems more going up than going down these days. What are the types of things, supplies, and so forth that are most needed as you know, CBP deals with the border? I would say the biggest challenge is the transportation, essentially moving the non-citizens around, like moving them around to where we can take proper care of them because it's all about the humanity. These are people, right? I mean, maybe they aren't supposed to be coming, but they're here and we need to treat them as such. That means, you know, you have to have the proper hygiene items, you know, nothing extravagant, but just enough to keep sicknesses at bay, and to make sure the children are well cared for. But pretty much now, since we have so many, it's really moving them to where we can process them quicker and better. So it's a lot of um, kind of every week, it's a different thing. We've been setting up some more facilities. These are sort of temporary facilities for, for them. And it's all so that we can get them properly processed and documented before they get to the next stage of the process. Because CBP really is only supposed to have people. I mean, ideally a day would be great, but I think the limit is like 72 hours. That time could be breached really quickly if people start backing up. So the the goal is just moving people out. So I would say transportation, temporary housing, and um, just the food, you know, the necessities. It's a very variable situation Mm -hmm. and it's hard to predict, you know, the demand signals like you can for something steady, like, you know, ammunition over the course of a year or uniforms over the course of a year, that kind of thing. And we do all that too. That's what's the challenge is the unpredictability. Right. And so what are some of the strategies you have to be able to not get into an anti-deficiency situation and yet keep Mm -hmm. people supplied with what they need? Mm -hmm. It could be, Mm -hmm. you know, 6,000 people this week, 2,000 the next Mm -hmm. week and Mm 10,000 the week after that. Mm -hmm. Well, we use every flexibility available to us in the acquisition regulations. But that being said, we do get ahead of things. We set up contractual vehicles, basically blanket purchase agreements for, for example, emergency supplies and services, which those folks know how to deploy quickly. We can do a quick runoff competition and get things. These are like the, you know, the hand washing stations and the port of John's and snacks and and things like that little kitchen setups and so on and so forth if we need it so i think that's that has saved us on many occasions because we have it also our partners at the department have awarded large strategic contracts for the temporary shelters and so on and so forth so we can do quick runoffs on those vehicles too so there's a lot of i'll say 
and then there's good old GSA, right? We love GSA. So we use vehicles that are already in existence and we compete as much as we possibly can. A matter of fact, in CBP, we surpassed, I think we almost did 74% competition last year on $7 billion. That's a lot of competition, even with all this going on. So I think we've figured out how to compete most of this stuff quickly. We are speaking with Diane Sahakian. She's Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Acquisition at Customs and Border Protection and a Presidential Rank Award winner this year. Just maybe for those that are not involved in this type of thing day by day, you mentioned there's the acquisition function and the contracting function. They're related in the same way that finance and accounting are related. Maybe explain the interplay and where does the competitive outreach take place, acquisition or contracting? I think contracting, which we call procurement, you know, that's the name we use at CBP. So procurement is a subset of acquisition in the CBP world. And they are, they kind of hand in hand. There are a lot of programs that require all sorts of, I'll say, gate reviews at the department level because they're big dollar. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, big things that last for a couple of years that require all kinds of like tests and evaluation and alternative reviews. Those are acquisitions. They are also procurements because you have to buy them but they have to go through a whole nother set of rules. But there's tons of procurements that aren't in the acquisition life cycle because they don't need to be because they're under like 300 million or, or whatever the dollar of the day is, right? So we do a lot of stuff in the sweet spot of, you know, under a couple of hundred million. We do a lot of stuff under a hundred million. We do a lot of stuff under a million. <laughs> you know, we just do all kinds of stuff. It sounds like you're pretty enthusiastic about this function. You have been doing it a long time. Give us the quick bio of your career. I started off in... um private industry for just a couple of years of all things as a contract administrator in court reporting, which is one of the most cutthroat businesses I ever could imagine. I got out of there and I joined the custom service. My first procurement, I came in as a GS-9, was a, was a P-3 airborne early warning aircraft. And my boss said to me, this is easy. It's a sole source with Lockheed. You can do it. Well, then we bought like eight of them. So that sort of shaped my career. First 10 years of my career was all air and marine, buying aircraft, helicopters, and all the support. And then I sort of started moving around. And then my big change came when the Department of Homeland Security was set up in 2003, and Air Marine went to somewhere else, and I didn't have anything to do. And I said, how about I handle the Border Patrol? And that's where things started to change for me in terms of really being able to make a difference and see a wonderful organization that kind of never really had the support they needed before now have an opportunity to really do what the Border Patrol needed, you know, in terms of raising the warrant levels of people out there and making sure the training was up to speed, getting them the things they need when they need them. <laughs> you know, we're talking every week you have to buy fuel, you know, you have to buy food all the time. It's It was a whole other ball game. I learned quite a bit. So I, I would say that I feel like a whole new job when the Department of Homeland Security set up. Like I was going to leave government, but somebody said you should just stay. It's going to change anyway. And it did. All for good. Yeah. And so that brings up the question of something you probably have learned to do well over the years, and that's balance the topical need, the variable need, the emergency need, say, in, as we discussed in the case of the border, versus the long-term sustainment and capital types of acquisitions so that people aren't driven crazy, but yet you don't neglect the long-term because of the need to focus on the short-term. How do you handle that one? Oh, that's a tricky one. So we realized, my deputy and I realized about two years ago that just keeping the, I call it keeping the lights on at CBP is about four 
billion a year, just the IT running, everything running. Anything over that is when we get money for certain projects or if the border's going busy like it is. And that's kind of how we hit. And, you know, the wall money that that bumps us up. So that's why we got over seven billion last year. We normally are sitting lately, I think, more around under six billion. I think this year will be who knows what the continuing resolutions are very problematic for us. I'll just throw that in. But in terms of, I think we have a certain group of people that do well in terms of contracting folks with the steady state. And then we have folks that get excited about working on Christmas Eve night, which we were had, to, which they had to do to set up facilities. So you have to find the talent in your shop and have faith in your folks that they can use the regulations at their fingertips and the contracts available to them to get to the right solutions. I'm happy to say that I have a pretty innovative shop and some really excited younger people that are willing to go to bat. You know, when I go, my legacy, I want it to be, we have, we have the right staff to do this hard work. That's where I'm at. <laughs> you must have gotten along very well with Soraya Correa, the former and legendary DHS chief procurement officer. Yes. You know, I give her a lot of credit too, you know, for giving us the opportunity to take those chances, you know, because I've seen a lot of change over the years that I've been in procurement where it was just like in the far, in the far, in the far. But I would always say, I get excited if I want to do something that's not in the far. I guess I can do it, right? It's not in the far. It's a whole other way of thinking. But that's kind of how I think. And now this innovation, I think, lets you think more that way. The far kind of tells you what you have to do and maybe what you we shouldn't do. But if it's not in there, then some people will presume you can't do it. But no, if it's not in there... <laughs> find an innovative way to get it done. So it's just a whole other way of looking at things. Sure. And what did the rank people tell you that you were cited for this year in the, in the awards? Mostly it seemed to be my head of contracting role, If to be honest with you. Uh, some of it was the acquisition side of the house, but I think mostly for the work in just keeping up with the tremendous load on the border. I, I, I think because my partners in budget and finance also, the three of us together, that was pretty cool. You know, that doesn't happen a lot that we were mission support type people that we get recognized in a law enforcement organization. But I mean, this one, this one was for my team. I mean, I don't do the work. You know, I manage it. Right. They're doing the work. They were so happy when I got the award, you know, and it made me feel good because it rec it recognizes the function as being important. That's the key here. Sure. And by the way, have you been to the border just to check out and see the stuff you have to buy in action and that can possibly yeah. give you insight into what can help? I've been more times than I can count. I've been many times. The last time was a couple of months ago. They actually put me on a horse. I, I will never do that again. But <laughs> yeah, but but it, it gave me good insight. I could barely get the horse to go forward. Right. And they go into the brush with a weapon, holding on with one hand and having like night vision goggles on on a horse. I mean, it, it brings a whole new uh, level of, I can't believe they can do that, you know? So as much as I didn't like being on that horse, it opened my eyes to things they might need to do it better because they, they're going into the brush. It's, it's incredible. It's one thing to be walking. It's a whole other thing on a horse. So, yeah. What yeah. do they say? A horse is a 1,200-pound animal with a brain the size of a peach. Yeah. Well, you know what? I was kind of scared, to be quite honest with you, but I got up there. I did what I could, and then I got right off. 
So, but it opened my eyes. Diane Sahakian is Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Acquisition and also the Chief of Contracts at Customs and Border Protection, and she's a Presidential Rank Award winner. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to be presenting a series of interviews with fellow Rank Award winners, so stay tuned for that. It'll be starting next week. In the meantime, find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive and subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs, 
and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, Is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, 
I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, 
somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.